Common Ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power, 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 one broadcast, one broadcast, broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham and I run the place, but it is your place here at Our Common Ground where black truth of the event, the idea, the notion and the action prevail. Thanks for joining us. Our number here on Saturday night, open mic at Our Common Ground is 347-838-9852, As we come into this episode of Our Common Ground, we want to remind you about healing yourself. Uh, all that chatter. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a voracious reader. I'm also a speed reader, which means that I may get through a couple of books a week, which is real heavy on the budget. And um, I read 
through about three or four newspapers a day. I read a lot of legal briefs. Um, and But I do read many, many, many blogs uh, on the Internet. And we thank Vice President Gore for these Internets. Uh, you know, there's some truth to that um, fantasy that he articulated way back when. Um, and it has to do with the Telecommunications Act. We'll talk about that another time. But I, I just want to remind you that when you take in a lot of information, and warriors, comrades, allies in this struggle for black liberation, we take in a lot of information. So much of it is negative. So much of it is consumed by the realities of our lives that we need to take the time to do self-healing, to heal ourselves, to nurture ourselves, and to take care of ourselves. And I was really reminded um, about that um, again today. Um, my three-year-old grandson who lives in a house that's very active. They're always going someplace. They're always late for someplace. They're always moving around, getting up and and going here and going there, getting to school, getting to meetings, getting to the playground, getting to the hiking, going on a trip, getting to the airport. And that's a lot of wear and tear on a three-year-old. And when he walks into my house, if I have not seen him for a number of days, the thing that he wants to do is to crawl up in my lap because he knows that I love to snuggle. And I think that we need to think about our lives in that way and and know that we have a place where things settle down, that there is some peace and some calm uh, and there's some snuggling for our lives. We uh, uh, Last week we talked a lot about uh, these hard dreams. As a people, we have walked through some hard dreams. Our dreams have not been easy to go from African kings and queens to slaves to the underclass to the invisible, to the always struggling. So I, I just want to remind you, and I want to send out a shout-out. I know she's listening, she and her little cohorts, because they're tired from partying last night, to my granddaughter, Imani, who not only was inducted into the National Honor Society for Math and Science on Wednesday night, but she also had her senior comprehensives, which is that she had to defend uh, her papers and projects presented in her area of struggle from faculty and other experts in the area, in that area. She is going to be receiving her bachelor's degree in biological something, 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 um, I'll have it. Re I'll know it in in May. 
So she had these senior comprehensives where for one hour she had to answer questions from faculty members about various papers and projects that she had done in her area of study uh, over the last three years. And she passed her comps. And that means that she has officially been placed on the list to graduate, and we are most proud of her. Want to share with you about what's going to happen at our Common Ground next week, our Soldier Warrior ally and comrade, Barbara Onwine, who is currently the Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, is going to be with us. Uh, we are honored to be able to have her have her with us to talk with her uh, before she leaves her post as the executive director of the Lawyers Committee on June 1st. And we're going to be talking about what her future is going to be like and how this will affect the Lawyers Committee. We do want to tell you also that she has become a radio colleague. She is now doing a one-hour weekly show, um, Ignite, and we'll tell you more about that next week. Here is our website for the for the the week that we want you to check out. It's called MappingPoliceViolence.org. MappingPoliceViolence.org, and if you go to our Facebook page or this event page, you will be able to find it. It tells you about where police violence is happening in any location across the country, and it's a good resource to have. Um, On my mind, I've got term limits for the U.S. Supreme Court. I think it's time, and for the Congress. I think it's time for uh, us to look seriously at budget limitations for this Congress, both about their travel and about the extent to which they are favored in their lifestyles. Haircuts, lunch, dinner, breakfast. Um, It's time for us to call them into question. If they want to wage a war, against poor people in this country if they want to wage a war, against federal employees in this country and the agencies, if they want to be obstructionists. We need to seriously look at the strategy necessary to challenge um, their um, benefits for being elected to the United States Congress. I I have always... um, been surprised as to why there hasn't been a law propagated or uh, a lawsuit brought against members of Congress who tend to believe that they should be there for a lifetime uh, and that they should have benefits that's not afforded anyone else in this country, especially in a disordered and dysfunctional Congress that we have. So think about that for a while. We're, we're going to be talking about some of that in June. 
And uh, also on my mind uh, this week has been about CEOs and major um, financial institutions, and none of them yet have been charged or convicted or sentenced. I, I we, we need to get back on that question. Uh, this is our common ground, and we thank you so very much for being with us. If you'd like to join us by listening in from your Smart device, our number is 347-838-9852. I'm so glad that you are with us tonight. And uh, it is open mic Saturday night, and that this is how it goes if you're new to Our Common Ground. Uh, I pitch out uh, two feature topics uh, that uh, I want to cover and that I prepare for. But you can call us at 347-838-9852 and you can pitch your own topic for which you have uh, had given great thought to um, uh, this week, and we'll try to uh, work with you and hear from you and try to drill down on that. Um, Another thing I I do want to tell you is at the end of our broadcast tonight, Uh, We're going to be featuring Dr. Naeem Akbar, and we hope you'll stay with us until the midnight hour uh, for that. Uh, The sabers are rattling around Asada Shakur, Um, and we're going to be vigilant about what might be happening in terms of people who are calling Uh, from some kind of action around um, extraditing her. My thoughts about that is I don't trust uh, President Barack Obama to understand or to support the issues of protecting her, and I don't support, I don't trust Raul Castro. This is coming from the law enforcement community in New Jersey. And the reason why that it is so dangerous and puts her at risk is because Christie, the governor of New Jersey, has to have those people, that community, supporting him as he holds up his hand to become a presidential nominee from the GOP. Now, let me assure you that I have watched, met, heard her speak. Asada Shakur is one of the most strategic revolutionaries that you will ever come about. And if she has an inkling that there may be an ounce, a semblance of success, she's connected. That's all I'm saying. She's connected. Thank you for being with us, and uh, you're on Our Common Ground. Our number is 347-838-9852. On this Saturday night open mic, my featured topics tonight are the Atlanta public school scandal. I do not call it the true scandal. 
It is a public school scandal. And I want to direct your attention to an article in the um, Black Agenda Report this week, which was written by Bruce Dixon. Um, And it asked the question, why was Atlanta's Beverly Hall indicted for racketeering while Michelle Ree won't be? Now, Beverly Hall was the superintendent of schools in in Atlanta, in the Atlanta Public Schools, and uh, she um, made her transition before she could be sentenced, even though she had been indicted. Um, and uh, so we'll we'll cover that in the two feature. Um, we'll cover that in the two feature topics that I'm bringing to our common ground tonight. One is the issue of boys teenage boys and mental illness using the framework and the narrative of the tragic, tragic life of Aaron Hernandez, who on this week at age 25 was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and is going to face another murder Uh, two more murder uh, uh, charges uh, in June and the possibility that even after that he will face another murder trial in the state of Florida and then there is a civil suit for a criminal act that injured a man coming also out of Florida He's 25 years old and five years ago signed a $40 million five-year contract with the New England Patriots. The trial was a big thing in New England. I don't know. uh, Across the sports nation, the football fans, it was big. Um, But when I was able to follow the trial... It occurred to me, this is a man that began to have mental illness problems in his teens. He was also a young boy who was a high school honor roll student, a star in track, football, and basketball. And no one picked it up. So we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about the Atlanta public school scandal in the second hour. Our number is 347-838-9852, and we've got to get started. And I do have a surprise for you. My dear, dear brother, warrior, scholar, genius, philosopher of our times, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, is going to be joining me to get through the whole notion of mental health and black boys. Thank you for being with us. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
be confused. Took a lot of years to see how. You've just touched our common ground. Open mic Saturday night. Let's open up the lines. Talk that matters. Write it down. Our number three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. I'm Janice Grant. On this open mic, I'll be listening for you. Open mic, open mic, open our common ground. Open mic, open mic, open our common ground. to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Janice Graham. Aaron Hernandez, on Wednesday, at age 25, was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole for the killing of an acquaintance, Odin Smith, and we certainly send out our heartfelt condolences to the family of Odin Smith. Hernandez grew up in the flagging factory city of Bristol, Connecticut, where during his youth there was a a declining downtown, was prowled by petty criminals who dreamed of making big scores in New England's prosperous hubs. His circle of friends included some small-time high school crooks, but he was largely shielded from the serious wrongdoing because he was one of the few who had a golden ticket out of central Connecticut. At the age of 17 years old, he was allowed to graduate high school early because he was an honor student. He left home as a proud, prized football recruit of the University of Florida, relocating so he could get an early start 
on becoming a big-time college football player. Within a few years, he was a star for the NFL's New England Patriots signing a $40 million contract extension as he moved into a huge home in the suburbs of Massachusetts near Gillette Stadium with his fiancée expecting a new baby. That baby now is two years old. Here's the story. My son Odin was the most precious gift in my life. On that Sunday, I had just came from church and my son saw me. He says, Ma, you look so beautiful today. I love those colors on you. And those were the last words I heard from my son. Charging the defendant Aaron Hernandez with murder. That kind of behavior doesn't describe the Aaron Hernandez many remember growing up in Bristol, Connecticut, where his family was celebrated as a local sports dynasty. I don't think there was another family that was more familiar in Bristol. Aaron was our golden boy. He had the family traits. His father and his uncle were standout athletes. His older brother, DJ, was a sports hero, too. Bob Montgomery covers high school sports for the Bristol Press. Aaron did track. In addition to football, he also did basketball. He was described in any sport he played as a man playing with children. Brad McMillan and Andrew Regali played basketball with Aaron beginning in middle school. He was twice the size of me. We were like the same height, but he was just more athletic, obviously. And I mean, he practiced like all the time. Practiced because his father, Dennis, pushed him constantly. His father was pretty strict. I mean, he told me his father used to make him to shoot 500 shots before he went sometimes to play with his, his friends. His dad clearly kept them anchored. I saw a closeness with them that I had never seen before. There was something about Dennis and, um, and Aaron, the way they intertwined. It was just, it was, it was magic in my eyes. In a heartbeat, that closeness is gone. And Aaron Hernandez changes his game plan. As a junior in high school, Aaron Hernandez is a sports hero. Tearing up the football field, track, and the basketball court. But then, the 16-year-old's world crumbles. I was sitting in math class with another teammate. Phone rang. The um, teacher went to go pick up the phone. And then uh, she said, you need to go up to the coach's room. Coach walks in and he says, Dennis has passed away. Dennis Hernandez, Aaron's father, his anchor, dies after routine hernia surgery. He was just sad. He couldn't, he couldn't stop the tears. felt uncomfortable just to see him so hurt. I felt bad for him. That father-son relationship comes up in conversations with Sheriff Thomas Hodgson, who runs the jail where Hernandez is being held. Clearly, at 16 years old, losing your father, it would be very easy to fall into the, the lifestyle of following people that don't help you make the best choices. One choice he makes 
is to tattoo some of his dad's advice on his arms. That's a quote my father always used to give me. If it is to be, it is up to me. Basically saying whatever I want my life to be, it's up to me to make it out that way. When it comes time to make his way to college, Aaron Hernandez takes a pass on his father's school, the University of Connecticut, despite pleas from his brother DJ, who plays there. At first, he wouldn't even talk to me, but there's days he's saying, like, it's our dream to play together. Come on, please. But Aaron stands firm, believing his football career will soar in Gator country. In January of 2007, he cuts his high school senior year in half and heads to the University of Florida, joining star quarterback Tim Tebow. And then I was kind of just bummed that he wasn't going to be on our basketball yeah. team. By April, still long before the Gator season opener, there's trouble off the field. The rookie teen loses his cool at this popular off-campus restaurant. There's an argument between Aaron Hernandez and the manager over a bill. Tim Tebow tries to calm things down and settle the check, but according to this police report, it all ends with Aaron Hernandez sucker punching the manager on the left side of his head, bursting an eardrum. The manager later tells police University of Florida coaches and lawyers have contacted him and they're working on an agreement. A university spokesman says they are not aware of any settlement. Was Hernandez on a slippery slope? He was tearing up the field as a gator, but some who knew him were worried, especially when he was unsupervised away from the game. If you could keep him on one side, he'd be fine, one source put it. The problem was, he couldn't stay away from the other side, adding it was a recipe for disaster. And it was a recipe that included marijuana. Hernandez was suspended at least once for using the drug. It's an issue that follows him when he enters the draft his junior year. Teams spent a lot of time on background checks hiring private investigators to be sure that this is somebody who will enter the NFL and stay out of trouble. Former Patriot running back Kevin Falk says the checks are thorough and intensive. And how far back do they go? If you've done something in middle school, they are going to go back and find somebody that was around that time and ask them. Trying to head off trouble before the draft, Hernandez goes on the offensive writing a letter to the Patriots' director of personnel. If you draft me as a member of the New England Patriots, he wrote, I will willfully submit to a bi-weekly drug test throughout my rookie season. Day three, round four. Prior to the draft, Aaron Hernandez was projected as a player that could be a first-round pick and no later than a second-round pick. And now, with another selection, they go Aaron Hernandez. He ends up the 113th pick passed over until the fourth round. I have to believe that him falling so far is more than just a story about marijuana, that there were questions raised in background checks about him that caused teams to say, we're going to downgrade him on our draft board. But during his first year with the Patriots, he proves himself. Tight end in a receiver body that could play running back, that could return punts, return kicks. That talent gets the 22-year-old 
a five-year, $40 million extension. You can't come here and act reckless and do your own stuff. I might have acted the way I wanted to act, but you get changed by Bill Belichick's way. What no one knew at the time, one month before he signs that deal, the football player parties at a Boston club. That night, two young men are shot and killed after leaving that same club by a man driving a silver SUV. Is there a connection? It's a silver SUV, but in the life of Aaron Hernandez, it's much more. In June of 2013, while searching his cousin's home for clues in Odin Lloyd's murder, police stumble on a Toyota 4Runner. It's in a garage, and it belongs to a leasing company who loaned it to the Patriot tight end in exchange for promotional work. For a year, Boston police have been looking for an SUV linked to an unsolved double murder. This appears to be it. How difficult has this loss been for you, sir, as a father? Uh, Ernesto Abreu's son, Daniel, was killed in that drive-by shooting outside a Boston nightclub, along with his friend, Safiro Furtado, on July 16, 2012. Witnesses say two men in a silver SUV with Rhode Island plates pulls alongside a bruised car. Shots are fired. Finding that SUV and other tips leads to a stunning discovery. Aaron Hernandez, seen on security video, police say, with another man, following a Bruin Furtado into that nightclub and stalking them in a silver SUV after they leave. Almost a year after he's charged with Odin Lloyd's murder, Aaron Hernandez, please rise. Aaron Hernandez is indicted for the murders of those two young men. How do you plead to this indictment? Not guilty. The defendant leaned out of the driver's side window of the SUV with a loaded revolver in his hand extended out. The defendant immediately fired at least five rounds from a 38 caliber revolver into the victim's car. But why? Daniel Diabreu, while dancing nearby, accidentally bumped into the defendant, causing the defendant's drink to partially spill. The motive, prosecutors say, is nothing more than a spilled drink by a complete stranger. The defendant told his friend that Mr. Diabreu had deliberately bumped him and was, quote, trying him. Court documents identify the friend with Hernandez that night as Alexander Bradley, the same Alexander Bradley who says Hernandez later shot out his right eye because the football player felt disrespected during an argument over a cell phone. All leading to a key question. Do those two violent acts suggest a dangerous pattern of behavior driven by paranoia? Being able to explain Hernandez's behavior that night could help prosecutors at trial. Eight months into the case, prosecutors bolster it by upgrading charges against the two men with Hernandez the night Odin Lloyd is killed. Ernest Wallace and another man 
Carlos Ortiz. How do you plead? Not guilty. Not guilty. This will be what's called a joint venture murder prosecution, where anyone who actively participates in the murder can be held guilty for the murder. Did he make all the right choices? No. In closing statements, Hernandez's lawyer admits his client may have helped cover up a murder, but insists he did not commit it. He was a 23-year-old kid who had witnessed something, committed by somebody he knew. He really didn't know what to do. So he just put one foot in front of the other. Keep in mind, he's not charged with being an accessory after the fact. He's charged with murder, and that he did not do. Charging the defendant, Aaron Hernandez, with murder. What say you, Madam Foreperson? Is the defendant not guilty, guilty of murder in the first degree, or guilty of murder in the second degree? Guilty of murder in the first degree. Madam Foreperson, by which theory or theories Deliberate premeditation and or extreme atrocity or crime. Standing outside Bristol Superior Court here in Fall River where a jury has convicted former New England Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez of first-degree murder in the June 2013 killing of Odin Lloyd, a 27-year-old Dorchester man who was shot to death near Hernandez's home in North Attleboro. When the verdict was read this morning, uh, Hernandez was largely expressionless, though he did shake his head once or twice as the verdict was announced, and he looked toward his mother, Terry Hernandez, and his fiancée, Cheyenne Jenkins, who were seated in the front row, uh, holding on to one another, uh, both of them uh, weeping. And in consideration of the crime for which you now stand committed, you are sentenced by order of the court as follows. You are committed to the MCI Cedar Junction for the term of your natural life without the possibility of parole. It was a feature presentation from Our Common Ground, compiled through audio from the Boston Globe, online, and CNN. We thank them for this resource. This is Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Black Talk Matters. We hope you'll join us in this discussion of the Aaron Hernandez trial. Our number... 347-838-9852. And joining us now is Dr. Tommy J. Curry of, of Texas A&M University. Dr. Curry, thank you so very much for, for joining us in what well, I thank think you. is a very important examination of an event that so many people paid attention to. And I do want to say to my audience that I, I did sit in on much of this trial, and it is very clear that Aaron Hernandez is guilty in some way of the death of uh, Odin Lloyd. Dr. Curry, one of the things that strikes me so much, first of all, I had the opportunity about three months before this murder uh, to have lunch with Aaron Hernandez, just by happenstance. He was in the restaurant, I was in the restaurant, and we were introduced, and we decided to have our lunch together. Mm -hmm. And uh, what has struck me about 
my in my interest of this case was that he told me that he identified as African American and not as Hispanic or Latin. Um, and we had a very interesting conversation about that. And one of the last things that I said to him as we were leaving is that you marry that lady and you marry her in two weeks. All this waiting and you're going to have a baby and uh, that's nonsense. Because mm-hmm. we I was talking about how I had really eased into very comfortably in my role as a grandmother to everybody. So uh, what, what, what really struck me is the idea, as I have been just entrenched in the issues of black youth and mental health and uh, understanding our own denials about mental health and the stigma uh, involved in mental health, is that it is very clear that this young man uh, had some kind of emotional, mental trigger at the death of his father at 16. Absolutely. Absolutely. And go ahead. Well, no, I think I think you're right. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing that's most disconcerting about these types of events, as tragic as they are, uh, is that we only get to see or even think about black men or brown men having mental health issues or needing attention or services from clinicians and doctors once something like this happens. Yes. Uh, you know, we we see we see black and brown men first and foremost as criminals, uh, and even when we say something bad in their life happened, we don't really take that to be the cause of why they have these deviant behaviors or criminal behaviors in society. And that's one of the frustrating things that I see over and over again, that when you see people like uh, Aaron Hernandez, who clearly has signs of psychological breaks, that's had signs of depression, he's now on suicide watch. When you have similar cases of Ray Rice, when you have all these people who have these histories of, of uh, some time of mental, physical, or in many cases sexual abuse in the hands of women and men, um, those things never come out. So all we see is... This person killed someone. This person's a murderer. This person's a rapist. This person's a domestic abuser. Uh, you know, and it's it's just it's a bad retrospect to have because uh, I think that what Aaron Hernandez demonstrates is that instead of us constantly focusing on the crime and the criminal um, and taking these punitive actions, saying we need to lock up these people because they're unsafe for society, perhaps we need to take a closer look at why the unsafe society is producing people like this, specifically black and brown men like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one of the tragedies uh, in our community is to look, is to buy into the stereotypes of black boys as gangsters, black boys want to be gangsters, want to be. Um, one of the things that, in my discussions with people up here on the northern plantation about this case was, well, you know, you can take the thug out of the ghetto, but you can't take the thug out of the man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think that's very unfortunate that uh, we don't stop and think through the notion of when a black boy is four in the fourth grade, they're not looking to be a gangster. Something Absolutely. happens. And what happens is the responsibility of adults. It's the responsibility of the parents. It's the responsibility of the teachers, the coaches. And, and Aaron Hernandez's case 
because it's clear to me that he developed some kind of borderline personality disorder with narcissism. I mean, he, 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 he this kid was caught up in being the best of what every boy wants to be, but at the same time having some kind of mental uh, uh, meltdown. No, I think, so I think you're correct. He had these coaches. He had counselors at school. I'm sure, especially when I think about the point where he had to decide whether he was going to leave high school early. He was in the boys' girls' club. He was in the, uh, from from what I've been able to deduce, I know he I know he grew, grew up in the boys' girls' club uh, in Bristol because he told me so. But um, he he had resources that many black boys don't have. He had all these coaches, he had all these counselors, people who were concerned about him, people who were following him, and I'm talking about professional people, uh, people who had to help him make the decision uh, to leave high school early, people who had to make the decision whether he should stay in school when he had the the incident down there at the University of Florida, and if he hadn't been a football player, he would have been thrown out of school. Right. So we have a we have a, a, a structural problem here when it comes to boys who are showing all the signs of some kind of emotional mental disorder. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that you know I'm constantly saying and trying to point out to people is that you know. As much as academicians like to tout that, you know, we have to decenter men, there is a scary lack of attention to now about the way that violence and abuse impacts the psychological states of men, specifically black and brown men. And one of the most frustrating aspects of this is that you're dealing with a population that because of the amounts of violence, homicide, and poverty that affects, disproportionately affects black men and boys, you know, I, we're, we're actually doing a, an IRB study on the sexual abuse of black men and boys uh, with Dr. Lutley uh, out in California. One of the things that, you know, she constantly finds is that black men are usually uh, ignorant of the types of pain. There's no language uh, to describe the types of pain that people are undergoing. And mm-hmm. because of this, you know, because there's not a language for black men to say, I've been abused, I've been hurt. There's not a language even for black men to talk about rape. I mean, we saw this where people were making fun of even Chris Brown for losing his virginity at such a young age. There's no language to talk about these types of things. So when you see someone like Aaron Hernandez, and we even see like what we usually think to be very positive role models around him, many times those people become enablers because they don't have a language and they don't have a kind of grammar to identify what's happening to these black men. So what ends up happening is that you have people pushing him towards something they think that he can accomplish, which is, of course, for black men's sports. And this ends up becoming another scapegoat for things that are very psychologically damaged, for for types of scars and hurts Mm -hmm. that don't get healed. 
And because there's mm-hmm. no attention to it, you know, and this is one of the areas that, you know, I really do hold academicians accountable is because if there's no attention to it in terms of a language that describes how black and brown men are suffering and have been abused and even how you deal with loss. I mean, it's a very powerful thing to lose your father from uh, from malpractice at 16. If they don't have a language to describe that, then there's nothing given to clinicians, right? Clinicians have nothing to say this is a target population. And even when there are clinicians who are dealing with this, those resources are not as widespread, for especially for domestic or sexual abuse and things of that sort, as they would be for, for their female counterpart. So there really needs to be an evaluation of what's going on with black men and boys so that you produce these kind of criminal and in many ways, you know, psychologically broken uh, personalities that are trying to cope with either negative things that have happened to them in their personal life or negative environments that they're surrounded by in their youth. Now, in, in in my thinking, I move away from the Aaron Hernandez types of the world because uh-huh. they have the attention. And I do want to note right. that I've done an awful lot of reading over the last two years about Aaron Hernandez. Uh, after his father's death, his mother remarried a very violent man. And there was lots of domestic violence in their home. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that is one of the decisions, one of the factors that led him to to graduate from high school early, to get out of that home. And one of the reasons that he didn't want to stay in Connecticut and go to school is mm-hmm. not to, is to be away from his mother, who sounds like she was a, a chronic alcoholic and maybe even a drug abuser. But if you move away from the Aaron Hernandez and you take a look at the gun and physical violence that goes on in our community, at mm-hmm. the anger that we're always acknowledging that black boys in the inner city experience, if you move, if you move into that setting, I think that it is an opportunity to really identify that as another um, psychopathic kind of behavior Absolutely. that kids are not getting any attention to. Absolutely. And you made a very good point. Uh, I think that in terms of language, it is easier for us when a, a girl withdraws, a teen girl withdraws, to talk to, talk to than a boy. Because we, we, we run around saying, well, boys, are, teenage boys are just like that. They're very quiet. Exactly. exactly. Um, we're in a teenage girl who, who has been pretty much um, a well-behaved child becomes misbehaving we begin to think through, did something happen? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, so that's an excellent point. No, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you know, given that I, I, mean, I study black men and boys uh, a lot, you know, and there's two things. You know, when, uh, to speak to your point, when, when we see there, there's just so much, you know, morality, you know, involved with how we judge female behavior. So we saw, as you say, women withdrawing, young girls withdrawing, um, sexually promiscuous behavior. We immediately connect that to depression, low self-esteem, or a history of abuse. But we see the same thing from, you know, young black boys with withdrawal 
or, you know, uh, sexual promiscuity, uh, you know, womanizing, and we just assume that that's masculinity, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and for me as, as a person that studies black men and boys very seriously in their relationship to their, you know, to their female counterparts, it becomes the most frustrating part because what you see is that people really do believe the racist caricatures and stereotypes. And this is not just white people. It's also black academics who continue to assert that, you know, they're, they're just, they've only read Michelle Wallace's Black Macho. So they have no knowledge of any clinical work done on black men or boys and their attitudes, or even their attitudes towards sex or masculinity, fatherhood, or any of these things. So what we end up ha- have happening is people simply ignore the reality of black men and boys. They ignore that some black boys have, you know, reported that they see people being shot in front of them at the age of four. Now, how do, how do you comprehend that? How does a four-year-old comprehend seeing someone get killed, murdered in front of them? And what kind of behaviors can we expect on the flip side? We simply ref- we refuse to talk about the sexual abuse and domestic abuse of black boys at the hands of black women in our communities. Despite it not being something that we politically think of as possible, it's something that happens quite often. We refuse to talk about the types of homosexuality in our communities, where young black boys are being raped by other black men and sexually assaulted and molested by other black men in their communities, and white men for that instance as well. There's a lot of baggage in our communities that produce these mental states that's not born because men, these black boys are just black men. It becomes a scapegoat because we're able to say that black masculinity is just fundamentally bad. It has a predisposition for evil. It has a predisposition for rape. It has a predisposition for murder. And we carry that along ourselves, usually in our kind of, you know, black macho handbag, without taking the time to understand the conditions and the types of abuse and neglect that produce the type of narcissism and sociopathy that creates someone like an Aaron Hernandez. And as you say, you're right, he gets all the attention now, but what about the thousands of cases. You know, there was a documentary uh called Boys and Men Healing and uh it was it was about a documentary about male sexual abuse. And one of the black men on there name was JT. He was a criminal, he was sentenced to life in prison, he committed multiple homicides, had records of domestic abuse, etc. And when people found out his history, it was one of the most severe cases of sexual abuse by women in his family, by other other men that he met within throughout his life. And he basically internalized the idea that he was worth nothing. He was a victim of rape. He was raped by women and men. And he's, now he's serving a life sentence because he killed people. And, and, when, and when we look at him, when we look at that number, we see a criminal and a murderer. Instead of someone who is being victimized and ignored by a society that suggests that sexual abuse, criminal abuse, domestic abuse doesn't happen to them simply because they're men. And this is the vulnerability mm-hmm. that young black and brown men have had throughout history, and people simply refuse to see it. So we mm-hmm. have a very mm-hmm. real condition where, as you say, as you say, Janice, we see communities where black men are, are living literally by gun and abuse. You know, Aaron Hernandez lives in a world where domestic violence was part of it, alcoholism was part of it. And we ask, well, then what type of child and mentality does that produce, and then how does that turn out when it becomes a man? And these mm-hmm. are these are mm-hmm. real mental health issues, right? These, these yeah, are things that scholars should be asking about. And, and, and for those of you who are on our common ground tonight, I really do want you to begin to think about fissures. Fissures are small breaks. Um, that attempt to heal themselves. And in healing themselves, they create other breaks. And we have children in our community 
who are just subjected to one seizure after another. Um, Tommy, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, and I do want to tell people I got my copy of Fortune in My Eyes by David Rothenberg where he talks about um, it, it is a, a wonderful book. Uh, David Rothenberg was the founder of the Fortune Society, and I happen to be a student member of the Fortune Society in the in the 60s, and I was one of one of the speakers for the Fortune Society, and David Rothenberg gives me such great kudos um, <laughs> in this book. But all of the guys that I worked with, every one of them at the Fortune Society, and these were men who had been incarcerated for murder, had been incarcerated for rape, had been incarcerated for so many just awful things, and my parents thought it was awful that I was traveling with these guys going around the country talking about um, prison reform. But uh, I came to, to to love some of these men, and we had and when they were kind of like training me as I went along, and they talked about their childhood. I mean, I was just middle class from West Palm Beach, Florida. I I was I was astounded. Um and and it's really ironic that I got my book in the mail on Thursday and that I also got an opportunity to meet and talk pretty intimately. I mean, I never have casual conversations with anyone. Uh which is really I need to learn that skill. But when I talked with Aaron Hernandez, he was so mannerable. He, right. he he talked about his mother. He talked about his grandmother. He talked. He did say that he had lost his father, and it was a big thing in his life, a really major big thing in his life. But when you think about it, all those coaches, all those counselors, all those teachers, all those teammates, they were in fact enablers because they allowed the feed that no matter what's going on you you ought to be grateful and he had a lot of things for which after I've done all this research for which he should not have been grateful Um, so I think that we have got to rethink about our, our approach to mental health for our, especially our teens, uh, that we've got to get real when we see children in our families who are sad, who are de- who are clearly clinically depressed, right. and we don't say anything. That when we see suspect sexual abuse or physical abuse against our children in our families, and we don't say anything, we are the silent enablers uh leading uh allowing their lives to be just debilitated and de- depleted and that's exactly how i see what went on with um Aaron Hernandez to bring us to this place because each one of the incidents for which he has been charged has to do with his ego. Mm-hmm. He was disrespected. 
We hear our children talking. We hear children in the street, in the inner city, in our neighborhoods talking about, I got to have some respect. You better respect. That's what the gang thing is all about. No, absolutely. Earning respect. And it's come, but this and is a product of the world. If, yes. I'm oh, sorry. Yes, yes. If, if we keep thinking that our children want to be bad, that they have some control over it, a 14-year-old who shoots another 16-year-old is out of control. Mm-hmm. And not in the normal way. It's not a. It is a emotional tantrum asking for help. Absolutely. All these boys that have to somehow and girls too hide behind a gun or a knife or a gang sign or a gang tattoo. I mean, if you've never seen Aaron Hernandez. This man has tattoos all the way down his every finger. Mm-hmm. I didn't know him well enough to to say to him, "That's ridiculous." But he, I mean, it's all over his chest, all over his back, all down his arms, and on every finger. To me, that was a that was nothing but a cry for. See me before I disappear. Right. Well, they're denied recognition in society. You know, they're, and that's, I, that's and, right. And that's you see, and that's the biggest problem is that when we when we speak about black men, and this is actually something I'm writing about in my book on black males, is that they have no recognition in society. I mean, you know, Janice, it's actually almost a crime to speak about black men at the cat, in, even in the university where you're trying to bring mm-hmm. people's attention and awareness to these problems. I mean, I've been literally booed, you know, by people because I've read papers on, on black men and boys. Uh, and many of those people were black, black women, uh, well, mm-hmm. black feminists more specifically. But, you know, this this is what I mean when I say that there's a lack of compassion towards the black male body and the black male life, even more importantly, uh, when we take it to people who have the power to bring attention to these issues. We need to focus on, on black men and boys so that policymakers, et cetera, can improve the lives of our whole communities. You see, the the problem is is that when we have these very isolated conversations and listen to, you know, as I've talked about before, these twit bots and these other people who are, you know, manipulating the liberal airways, they're going to speak about this insofar as it fits their identity politic. This is yet another case of a black or brown man who, because of masculinity, ended up killing someone. Support my politics, stand up against black masculinity. That's not the issue here. The issue here is that he has a traumatic childhood, the death of a family member that's very close to him, the erasure because of, you know, his mother, you know, erasure of violence at the hand of his stepfather and also his mother, a history of domestic abuse. And, then, you know, this this is what creates this, right? And that because there's yeah. no sociality for black men, there's not groups or positive enforcement, we get enablers. So sports becomes his outlet. He achieves because of his masculine. He achieves because of recognition. And then when he's disrespected, it brings up all those scars of being ignored and not recognized and abused from childhood. This is a constant pattern that we see. And because young black boys grow up in worlds where they can be erased, you know, I mean, you know, Janice, you know, if you, you know, some of this literature is just so clear that black boys grow up in a world where people don't even ask them what they think. 
you know, and, and we have to kind of get beyond the identity politics of this as well, because even in our communities, black boys are in prison. They're imprisoned by the neglect of black women. They're imprisoned because of the neglect and abuse of other black men. This is a community problem. It doesn't play by the rules that we formulate in the academy to play these mind games. In the real world, black boys are children, and they could be abused by male or female adults. So that vulnerability plays out in ways in which they're being touched, they're being molested, they're being psychologically abused, saying they're not worth anything, saying that they'll never be anything, saying that they're criminals, right? These are the images and psychological cues that we give to these young men. And then when they grow up into that, when they're triggered by incidences of, as you say, disrespect, or they're triggered by incidences of uh, a domestic dispute, they're triggered by incidences of a woman cheating on them or betraying them or lying to them, right? All these things create the conditions that make them act out violently because they've had this violence cultivated in them since birth. And until we start yeah. addressing the communities and the families and the resources and providing clinicians that actually understand the problems that black men have, then we're going to keep the same cycles going on and on because these black men are not only dangerous to themselves, but they're dangerous to their partners and they're dangerous to their communities and environments. So he's going Absolutely. to jail, and we, we have someone dead. So this is this shows that there's a re, there's a reaction and spillover of these psychological problems that are not being addressed in our communities. Yep, he left a two year old yeah. and a fiance who ha, he has been with since high school in a one point five million dollar house. She has never had any substantial employment. The house has been placed on, a lien has been placed on the house by the courts. What is her future? The, 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 the other point I want to make, uh, Dr. Curry, is this. I am wondering for boys in the situation like Aaron Hernandez and boys who live in some of the worst kind of emotional and financial poverty. If, you know, one of the things that people have been asking me since I've been the top researcher on Aaron Hernandez for two years, <laughs> people have been asking me, um, why did he hang around, even he was a college student, he was an honor student, and why was he hanging around with these two-cent thugs, and petty gangsters in Bristol, and even after he left for college and after he was in the NFL, he still held on to them. And one of the things that I have been thinking about, and I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I am 65 years old. Yes, ma'am. So I will kind of jump out there and I will attempt to say one more thing, and I'm wondering, uh, after his father died when he was 16, his mother very quickly got into a relationship with a drug dealer in Bristol who was very abusive, a drug dealer whom his father had denounced, and she ended up marrying him. And I'm wondering that if his shame of what was happening in his home was bigger 
than the victories he was seeing as an athlete. Very well, maybe the case. So that that might lead to the idea that his comfortability level with these little petty thugs, uh, Ernest Wallace, who was like twenty years older than him. he had a whole bunch of a whole bunch of guys who were older and they never had jobs. All they did was sell drugs and blah 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 blah. And I'm wondering if he was just more comfortable with them because they understood what they under they didn't see him in the light that they would that he had to be sh- ashamed. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, so I do, we, I do. We, we need to make sure as parents and as grandparents and aunts and uncles that our children are not having to be ashamed of the conditions under which they live in their families. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I so, mean, but we don't address, we don't... You know, I think we, you know, we had this conversation before. We don't address the black family. Um, for all our theory and post-structuralism and, and talk of intersectionality, we give we we give two cents to the actual conditions of black families and their economic and political states. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so children, and you know, this is as I, I believe you know we had this conversation when we were talking about Ray Rice. Children become the collateral damage in these types of analyses. It becomes the collateral damage in terms of how we think about uh, the reality of, of policy. Uh, you know, we we have all this stuff going around about rape culture and about you know holler back videos and all these silly things that we that we you know that are important because people should be respected. But then we ignore the fact that the high conviction rates of black boys in juvenile justice centers yeah. also increases their risk for sexual abuse at the, high, at the hands of staff members in these centers, which happen to be white women. So we, we, we ignore all of this, Janice, and then we, we come up with these debunked theories that in many ways erase the type of experience that Aaron Hernandez would have. They erase the types of experiences that most black men have. They erase the realities of all these black males that are growing up in foster homes that are dealing with physical and sexual abuse there because they're unwanted. Mm-hmm. They're the hardest group to adopt. So, you know, it's, it, it just amazes me as a scholar that we have people that are allegedly so interested in black people but don't know a damn thing about black people. And they don't care to look at what causes the types of brutalities and violences in our communities because they want to hold on to their precious theories. So we now have a situation where a man is dead, a man is spending his life, the rest of his life in jail, a, a, a fiancé and a child are now practically homeless given that they were living with him. What what does the world have? What what mm-hmm. kind of tragedy has to transpire in the world for us to say this is not a celebrity issue, this is a sociological issue, and we need policy and attention to address what's happening to black communities that constantly produce and repeat these cycles of violence? That's that's just not the conversation anymore. You know, you, you yeah. look smart by using hashtag rhetorics, not by sitting down and trying to figure out why these dots connect and why we keep producing these types of men and women. Uh, and mm-hmm. and you know and it's sad because this is 
This is the type of thing that Du Bois was dealing with in Black Reconstruction, the Philadelphia Negro. He was trying to show black people that they were not simply the products of their sociological environment, and given the resources, they can change. And today we've accepted there are certain constructs of black poverty and black masculinity that are beyond change, which is the, which is the antithesis of what black people have been arguing for the last hundred years, but gets codified in kind of our liberal and bourgeois feminist-slash-progressive politics that want to jettison anything that becomes lower class or, you know, pathology. And these mm-hmm, people need mm-hmm. help. Aaron Hernandez, even though he was making millions of dollars, is a product of that kind of social pathology. Not simply because he was black and poor, but because in that poverty there were abuses that people would not recognize, would not see, and were left untreated. We need serious clinicians mm-hmm. and social workers that can recognize these problems and intervene. Mm-hmm. Dr. Curry, thank you so very much. I know you have to go. And I thank yes, you for jumping in here and helping us. Uh, I think a male voice on this issue, on these issues, are ve- is very important. Uh, I, I think the work that you are doing uh, is very important. Um, I, I, I look out at this out of the lenses of, um, of of my legal training, my business training, and my grandmothering, uh, yes, and ma'am. what I learned as being uh, <laughs> from being a mother. Uh, I have always wanted a son, and you're it. Bye. <laughs> thank you, Mel. That's, that's, that's the highest order of compliment. <laughs> so thank you very much. We're going to be thank taking you. your calls at 347-838-9852 right after we have to go to a break, and we thank you for being with us. This is our common ground, and uh, I'm I'm so glad to have all of you uh, with us tonight, we do want to uh, cover, cover the Atlanta public school um, scandal, and I call it a public school scandal because it's not just just the teachers who were caught; it's the whole system. We'll be right back. He was a 23-year-old kid who had witnessed something committed by somebody he knew. He really didn't know what to do, so he just put one foot in front of the other. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. What we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this economy. And this, uh, these people are sabotaging this country. On TruthWorks Network, the best of political pushback. Go for it, Alpha. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real raw, right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media. Come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. India Declare will be returning in May at I Declare right here on Blog Talk Radio, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Janine, are you raising the energy up or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare it. Dealing with the difficult... Real Raw right now, the I Declare Show, baby. Hello, I am Chauncey DeVega. You may recognize my voice from Ring of Fire Radio with Mike Papantonio, the BBC, Sirius XM, or the Tom Hartman Radio Show. And you may have read some of my essays at places like Salon and Alternate. The Chauncey DeVega Show at TruthWorks Network, Mondays, 8 p.m. There's a recent survey, it's actually, I think, experimental psychology, public opinion research, where they asked white respondents about the criminal justice system. And they showed them data before and after, clearly indicating that the system is biased, deeply biased against African-Americans and African-American men in particular. And even when made aware of the information, these white respondents, this is across divides of party and ideology, were even more likely to support punitive measures by the criminal justice system, even knowing that they were unfair. The Chauncey DeVega Show at TruthWorks Network, Mondays, 8 p.m. If you're willing to accept our freedom, then you have to be willing to accept what comes with. What's happening here is bigger than you. This is about every black man who cannot get justice. You have to change. You take their drugs, you sleep with their women, and then they put you in their hands. You need to represent. You need to be the voice for people who do not have a voice. Now the 
whites in Georgia fight Negroes with a smile, whereas they used to fight them with a growl. But they're still being bitten, and we don't think that it is, that it is any worse to be bitten with a smile than just to be bitten with a growl. Thank you for being here on Our Common Ground, where we speak truth to power and ourselves. We thank Dr. Tommy J. Curry for dropping in and uh, laying out some genius, just some genius every time. Thank you so very much for being with us. This is Saturday Night Open Mic, and we've been talking about Aaron Hernandez and the urgency of mental health for black boys in our community. We're going to go to our phones, and I just do have to tell you, you're going to have to get through it very quickly because we do have to get to the Atlanta Public Schools um, scandal. 111, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. I respect you. Greetings to you, Janice. Is that me? Hey, now. Long time no see. <laughs> I know. I've been missing you. Janet, How I are you? Take a break from. I'm I'm doing great, Janet. So I'm greetings to you as well as to the on Common Ground listening audience out there. I'm sorry, got I missed Dr. Tommy Curry, but he was on point. And um, I had to replay your show from last week a couple times, and it he was so on point in everything he said on that show. But since we have to be very abbreviated on this call for tonight. This situation, um, Janice, with, with um, Aaron Hernandez, what I think it is, because since you said this mom, he was a brilliant child, he had, um, he was academically brilliant, and, you know, the tatted up. I don't know if he was brilliant, but he was an honor roll student in high school, and it yeah, was well, a predominantly was white high school, so he had and, to be and, doing and, something. <laughs> yes, he was, he was gifted academically. What I've noticed that a lot of these children is, you know, they call keeping it real because when, mm-hmm. especially in boys, when they're brilliant, they have to downplay and try so as not to be um, put on put on the carpet, so to speak, because of their academics. So they downplay and they go into this thuggery and, and this gangster mode and want to keep it real when keeping it real is not as real as they want to think it is. Because mm-hmm. I've noticed this, this with this tatted upness, especially in black children. Because I have a niece. Her stepfather took this child to get a tattoo when she was 17 years old. Her mother almost went off, almost chopped his head off. Because first of all, he didn't even ask her permission before he went and put the, allowed this child to get a tattoo on her shoulder. And I'm, and I'm saying to myself, I said, I don't understand why y'all are slave branding yourself. I have no tattoos on me, Jenny. I'm in my 50s. I, I've never had interest in tattoos. But it is something that, that this culture has taken up on with its tattooing and its excessive body piercing. It has gone overboard. It, men used to do it because, you know, they were in the biker thing and all of that. Now it's the women. And it's totally disgusting. It makes me want to throw up when I see women walking around, their pants lowered. I could see on their butt crack, and they have all kinds of stuff on their butt. And they have stuff on their stomach, on their breasts, on their necks. It, 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 is going, it is getting out of hand. Well, I saying, think where are they going to work? I, I think it's it's way beyond um, tattoos. Uh, one 
one of the things that has become disturbing to me as I get older is the notion of how much information, uh, how much information that our children are getting that they're too young to process. Exactly, um, Janet. You know, I, 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 I just, it's the TV, it's the games, it's the iPad. Um, the distractions. Exactly. Exactly. It's a distraction because, because I had to go off on my nephew. They came down to, to visit us for the Easter weekend. My two nephews, one is 20, one is um, 16, going on 17 in June. And their mother, she drove down here. Now, she drove around us, lost in the sauce, trying to find our house to get to where we are out here in Dallas, going around in circles. Her two sons, and he right in the front seat with his mother. He reclined all the way back, like even on a chaise lounge. Face in his doggone phone, iPhone. She's on the phone calling me, and I have to talk her all the way through to get here. When they got here, I blasted it. I said, you don't make no sense. I said, you riding with your mother in this car. You're supposed to be our navigation system, that you come to this house many times to know what exit to get off on the interstate to get here. You have your mother driving around, running out the gas, have to turn to go to the gas station, put some gas in the car to get here. Are you driving around in a car with your mother? You don't give a damn yeah. and she's driving around here at all. But, but here, here's, here's, here's a point that I think that we really need to ponder, and that is, are parents too distracted to parent? I mean, I'm talking about, I'm talking about those that are committed to parent to parenting. Um, They're too I mean, Janice, because I get on my sister-in-law, and she always says, well, well, you raise your children, or let me do my... I say, yes, I'm going to let you do me dirt, but you see what you got in your hand, because you're driving around here, your children can't tell you, give you directions, and Ma, you need to take this exit or that exit. You want to, you're, wasting, you're raising useless men that's going to make some woman's life miserable, because... Um, these women are not, they're not going to be like you. They're not supposed to raise your, your sons. Your son's supposed to come to them yeah. as mature men and not for them to try and raise them all over again. I said, you are doing a disservice to your children, to your male children. Yeah. I'm going to have to go because I've got a uh, yes, lot of calls that have been holding yes, on. But I'm glad for you to I be listen. back. Yes, and, you can put me on, on And for those and of you who call. did miss, miss the beginning of the show, our shows are our programs are always archived 15 minutes after we uh, shut down this broadcast. You can listen uh, on demand. But I'm glad to have you back. Glad to be back, Janice, and thanks again for the show. Great show as usual. You can just go ahead and mute me, and I'll listen to the rest of the call. Okay, I will, and thank you for your call. Uh, we really appreciate it. 443, thank you for your patience and waiting. I respect you. You're on our common ground. Four four three might have stepped away from the phone. Four four three. Going what? Hello. We're going to put you on mute, and you can continue to listen to the remaining of the show. Uh, because of time, we're going to have to get to this at Atlanta Public School. Um, um a scandal uh in the political climate of georgia the uh 
the former school superintendent and 34 other black teachers and administrators were indicted for racketeering in a cheating scandal. There are two questions. Why were was their sentencing? They were facing 20 years before most of them pled out to seven. And some weekend and volunteer services in addition to that with probation for five years. And there are two questions. Why aren't others like the former D.C. schools chancellor, Michelle Ree, and her team indicted? And the question becomes, should we be rallying the racial wagons around the 34 black teachers and administrators who were sentenced this week? My other question for you is, as you make judgment about what happened here, do you really know what this story is about? Why was this happening where um, we know privatization of public schools is a big issue in the state of of, uh, Georgia? Uh, But the Fulton County Black District Attorney was able to convene a grand jury and morph teaching on tests into criminal racketeering indictments. Why is this happening? To the extent that we always ask you about uh, connecting the dots, Exactly what does this have to what does scores on standardized tests which are tracked to income levels in the United States where residential segregation along racial and economic lines is the rule what really does this have to do with no left behind a gift given to us by the former president George W Bush and to the extent that we make judgment about things that are going on in this country. Remember last week we were talking about, or week before last, or last week we were talking about thinking black, thinking through the lenses of our history and our experience when we look at events that are going on in this country. Well, we ask you to do that, and I'm wondering if you have done that in regard to this scandal, because they're putting all the blame on the teachers and administrators that they indicted, uh, on the superintendent who was hired specifically around the mandate of No Child Left Behind. Here's some information that you need. This is Our Common Ground And if you want to get on on this discussion, our number is 347-838-9852. ...is to implement the No Child Left Behind law thrown on America by President Bush and the Republicans in Congress at that time. Ironically, some of the same types of conservative racism and big money that led to Dr. King's assassination also helped to explain why a group of hardworking, underpaid educators at some of Atlanta's most disadvantaged schools put their careers and freedom on the line. They cheated not to make millions or to advance their political careers, 
but in order to keep their neighborhood schools open and keep their jobs. Joining me now for more on this is Lamar Waldron, political commentator, historian, and author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Lamar, welcome back. Great to be with you, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Tell us how this whole scandal started. Well, it's, it's, it's really important, the story of how it started, because this has gone on not just in Atlanta, but in dozens of cities across the country. And what has just happened in Atlanta after four years of trials and exposés could happen in any of those cities as well. And, and the tragic irony is this was all predicted by educators and pro, uh, progressives uh, years ago, more than a decade ago. And, and so there is this hidden history here. So the whole scandal really starts in Texas back in the 1990s when the uh, one of the uh, uh, Texas uh, school officials in Houston, Rod Page, uh, was behind, later found to be behind a similar type of cheating scandal uh, that, that somehow, you know, scores could magically go up in disadvantaged schools in poor areas without spending more money on them. Well, of course, that sounded great to the governor of Texas at that time, George Bush, and so he made uh, the ringleader of that cheating scandal, Rod Page, his secretary of education. In other words, someone who had shown that without spending any extra money, uh, you could, in fact, magically raise... Was this, was this the guy, the Secretary of Education, who called the National Education Association, the NEA, a terrorist organization? That's exactly right. I mean, that, that is how Rod Page and the Bush administration viewed teachers and principals and educators. Uh, they were terrorists. In other words, this is all part of that war, the conservative war on uh, good education funding. And the real goal of what people have heard called No Child Left Behind was actually to cut education funding, especially for middle class and disadvantaged uh, youth in America. Wow. Um, uh, wasn't No Child Left Behind a bipartisan bill that even Ted Kennedy supported? That's exactly right. But unfortunately, they were all sold a bill of goods. You know, Bush, Cheney, and the Republican leaders then, and many of those Republicans are in Congress today and leaders, uh, the law was just a sham. It was designed to cut the, the funding for the middle class and poor kids as part of the overall goal of conservatives to, you know, shrink U.S. government so much it will fit in a bathtub, as Grover Norquist says. And that's why the law was never fully funded and never properly implemented. Wow. So No Child Left Behind was designed from the start to punish schools and teachers in poor neighborhoods by cutting their already low funding, closing their schools, and firing their teachers. Do I have it right? That's exactly right. And Georgia's a, a, just a textbook example. The Republicans took over in Georgia back in the 2002 and uh, those elections. Since that time, they have cut $8 billion from the education budget. And that's been repeated in state after state. But in Georgia, I mean, cutting $8 billion from public education should be, you know, that should be the front page news story because uh, it, it, it's, just, it's, it, it's just amazing, you know, and, and, and these poor teachers and educators who are punished, the law built in these small financial incentives. So you would get to keep your school open, keep your job, and get some small you know, bonuses and that sort of thing if your, your scores magically raised without getting proper funding for your school. And, 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 and so that was kind of built in to encourage people to cheat. Like I said, that cheating was predicted years ago. But, you know, the real money is, of course, made by the conservative leaders, the Republicans who get all the, the donations, even the testing companies. There are about four major testing companies. McGraw-Hill is one of the largest, 
and the, the head of McGraw-Hill you know, is a major funder to Republican candidates and even tried to pressure the Obama administration once to cut U.S. funding even more by cutting America's own credit rating. So, so that, that, that's the big money story that you're not hearing reported in any of the mainstream coverage of this, what's called this Atlanta cheating scandal. So we have an element of, of, of hustlers, basically, business people. Um, I'm, George Bush's brother was one of these guys who owned one of these standardized testing companies. Um, you know, hustling the tests, and you've got basically racists who are trying to destroy schools in low-income, predominantly minority neighborhoods. The headlines, though, are all about teachers and principals cheating. Um, uh, why, why do they focus on, on the teachers and the principals, uh, you know, changing their answers and not on the big money politics that actually explains, as you're doing right now, explains what happened? Because, of course, you know, the, 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 the local, the, the cheating scandal at a local level and with the headlines in the Atlanta newspaper, um, which is owned by the Cox Corporation, which also owns our largest TV station and our largest radio station, it's been a very coordinated effort. That's all a smokescreen. That's why you're not seeing regular headlines about the $800 million in cuts. I, I can point this out to you as well. The Atlanta school superintendent, Beverly Harvard, was an African-American, but she was not the candidate who was championed by the neighborhood community leaders or by the civil rights organizations and icons we're lucky enough to have here in Atlanta. No, she was supported by and doing the bidding of the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, whose leaders, I'm pretty sure, send most of their kids to private schools. So her task was to magically raise test scores without demanding adequate funding for these schools, especially in the poorest areas. So, and, and, and get this, so the whole scandal, a big part of it was exposed. The uh, Georgia's Republican governor appointed former Attorney General Mike Bowers, a disgraced former public official, extremely anti-gay in two big court cases in the 90s, who was caught having a decade-long affair with a former Playboy a club waitress. So, so Bowers had been in disgrace. He was brought back to have the commission to expose all of this horrible cheating. And, and it's just, so the people that made the money, remade their reputations, made millions of dollars, you know, they're not the ones who were put on trial under the, under the RICO Act, designed to prosecute organized crime. This is Georgia's own RICO Act, which of course isn't used to go after the mafia. It's used to go after public school teachers. And, yeah. and now they're facing horrible penalties. They're, they're facing 20 years, aren't they? I, I, I understand murder in, in Georgia is five to 10 years. Well, some of the people are as low as five years. Uh, some of them are as high as 20 year sentences they're facing. I mean, and just, just imagine this. Okay, so I, I'm not saying these guys don't deserve some sort of punishment. Most of the teachers were able to not give in to that temptation or that pressure that they would lose their jobs, be fired or publicly humiliated. But, uh, you know, lift their certification, teaching certification for a year or two don't make them face prison. Here's what it's like. It's as if you had someone go into a bank and rob it with a gun, and you're prosecuting the teach, you know, the, the teller, who's the teacher in this analogy, and you're not prosecuting you know, the crook who put the gun to their head and forced them to hand over the money or cheat in the first place. So it, it, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Um, so they could go to prison while the Republican officials who really caused the scandal keep profiting from all the testing and education cuts, and this is continuing to roll out across the country? Is there and any Georgia, pushback? Georgia, just this year, they're cutting another $400 million in education funding. And get this, 
they're trumpeting that as a major triumph. In other words, we're not cutting it as a, by a billion like we used to, a billion a year. We're only gutting these already underfunded public schools by 500 million, and, and you're right. In red states all across the country, this is what's happening. And, and I, I'm just so glad you're willing to talk about this story, Tom, because most progressives, most civil rights officials, they don't know the big picture. They haven't been following this story as I've been lucky enough to here in Atlanta while I was working on our, our, our hidden history books. And so I, I've been following this and just wondering, when is somebody going to put this story into context the way you and I did with Martin Luther King's assassination? When everything makes sense, when you look at the hidden history, and it's hidden for a reason, and, and look at the context, things suddenly make sense yeah. as to why these yeah. poor educators did this. And now what they're facing. And like I say, it, it'll continue across the country unless people start, just start a dialogue, just yeah. start talking about this more. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Lamar Waldron, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for dropping by tonight. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And now, back to Janice. Um, and the question really is, uh, to what extent these teachers had any control over what they were being directed to do? Um Dr. Hall, who was the superintendent of, of 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 schools, pretty much implemented every misguided corporate inspired reform that the business and privatization oriented consultants brought to her, closing schools in favor of charter schools, excessive testing, even purchasing the tests from firms with connections to the consultants who recommended them. Hall even helped then Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin, listen to this divert over $100 million a year in tax revenues, which should have gone to Atlanta's public schools into a real estate and gentrification boondoggle called the Beltline. So in every respect, Beverly Hall, the superintendent, who was giving orders to these teachers and administrators, in every respect she was a loyal asset to the forces who have been demonizing teachers and dismantling public education in 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 the interest of privatization. I really do apologize. Um I I think that we have to think through the lenses of our experience and of what we know happens in this country. Thirty one teachers have been indicted. Many of them will spend seven years in prison. All of them have become felons. And so what does that tell you about the system? What does that tell you at all about the system? Um, We've got some work to do, but I do want to direct your attention this week on a Rolling Stone um article and also on the article in the Black Agenda report by uh Bruce Dixon on the Atlanta uh, teachers and administrators uh indictment. Uh the report or the article in the Rolling Stone is the Republicans War on the Poor and it concludes that the GOP is pushing to decimate food stamp programs and punishing the most vulnerable just out of sheer spite. 
just out of sheer spite. You can find it at rollingstone.com, and I hope you do take take a chance, uh, take the time um, to take a look at it. Also, uh, it's the matter of asking you to join us on Facebook. Uh, we're at OCG Talk uh, on Facebook. Uh, we are Janice at Janice OCG. Also, if you want to follow Dr. Tommy J. Curry on Twitter, it's Dr. TJC on Twitter. TruthWorks is TWN Talk. And uh, don't forget that India Declare will be coming back in May at the I Declare show. Alpha will be every Friday night drilling down on politics from an urban progressive point of view, 10 p.m. live. And I will be right back here on next Saturday with uh, Barbara Arnwine, who is the uh, executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. She's going to be joining us once again. And our feature next week will also be my 1989 interview uh, with Dr. Amos Wilson. Um, two hours of discussion with him. We want to thank Dr. Tommy J. Curry for joining us and dropping in to talk about the issue of black male mental health in adolescents. Uh, I think it's an important thing for us to look at. Um, We can't fail on every front. We simply cannot. And as I promised you, coming in to the program tonight, we're going out with some thoughts about our community from Dr. Naeem Akbar. We hope you pay close attention and will stay with us uh, during that time. As you may know, we do have an open chat room. It is not moderated, and it is open each Saturday night during this broadcast for you to talk to each other. On our event page for this broadcast, there are a number of reference articles that I have um, put up, and we hope that you will uh, check them out. They are. We always post reference materials for us to, for you to follow along. They include an article called "The New Estimate of Killings by Police Is Way Higher and Still Too Low." Aaron Hernandez shed tackles, not, but not his past, from the New York Times. Uh, the full interview uh, with. Um, Tom Hartman, and we thank him for his interview that we uh, presented tonight. Uh, An article from psychcentral.com, Social Problems in Teens Can Lead to Personality Disorders. And, of course, the article that we just referenced, uh, The Republicans' War on the Poor, and Why Was Atlanta's Beverly Hall Indicted for Racketeering While Michelle Ree Won't Be? And there is also a reference, the National Police Violence Map that I talked about at the beginning of the uh, program tonight. Thank you for, for being with us, and we hope we'll see you right back here live on Our Common Ground, 
Don't forget, it's the book, if you want to know about me as a college student, Fortune in My Eyes, a memoir of Broadway glamour, social justice, and political passion by David Rothenberg, the founder of the Fortune Society, which was the first um, 20th century um, organization for calling for prison reform in this country. I'm Janice Graham, and thank you so much for being with us tonight. Now, Dr. Naeem Akbar. You understand? Now, look, we know that the Richmond jail is full of black folks, no doubt. Virginia prison system, black folks everywhere. Crack dealers around this neighborhood, black folks. They there, there's no doubt about it. We got crack dealers, we got drugs, we got alcoholics, we got bombs sleeping in this, we got them all. You're right, there, there. Young boys falling out of school, third grade. We have people beating up their families. We got all that. But why is this kept? So do white people. And what's more, what's their damn excuse? They live in a society that constantly told them, you are worthwhile, you are valuable, you are capable of leadership, you deserve to be the leadership of the world. They live in a society that constantly told them positive messages about their possibility. You have to overcome every obstacle out there, and you got to fuel those two. So, so what? That's not easy to explain. To explain why young brothers give up early, trying to move ahead in a system that shows nothing positive for their possibilities? To understand why young girls who are told that they are too fat, too black, too gingerhead, nose is too big to be beautiful? To begin to believe that their intelligence is not worth anything because they don't look like Madonna? To begin to believe in a society like this, that somehow, unless they look like the Virgin Mary, there is no spiritual privileges in them. When I say the Virgin Mary, I'm talking about the Rembrandt form, the Raphael form, the Michelangelo form. I ain't talking about the real form. I'm talking about those forms. To believe that somehow there is no dignity in you unless you look like someone other than yourself. Doesn't it make sense that you try to go find something to make you feel good and love may be the only way there? Doesn't it make sense that some brothers will feel that somehow they only claim the power and effectiveness of being able to go from woman to woman, spread babies all over town, because that's the only way they can prove their manhood, because they can't find it anywhere else? That's accepted. That's understandable. Don't you think that some brothers will be crazy enough to believe that they can walk around with a white woman no matter how she looks, that they somehow have gone into power just to keep somebody else? predictable condition. Create an environment like this, jungle fever, epidemics break out. People check it, it happens. Now what we're suggesting is that that's predictable. What's not predictable is these brothers who still love them some black women no matter what. Look, what's not understandable are these black women who keep on loving them some black Big nose, take your hair, thick lip, black men. No matter what nobody says. What's phenomenal is how the one PhD come out of the Richmond Project and come to BCU and kick butt all the way through. What's not understandable is how the one John Stapleton come out of Compton and go put together a story about who we are that begins to make all the filmmakers hang up their books. What is it then that is able to take us and give us the creativity that nobody thought we should have and they did every doggone thing they could to prevent us from having it? Our Common Ground Transforming Truth to Power One Broadcast at a Time 
It's been a pleasure spending the evening with you, speaking truth to power and ourselves. It's been talk that matters. We are grateful for your listenership and your support. Don't forget to join us at TruthWorks Network, Mondays and Fridays, The Alpha Show, Friday, 10 p.m. Please join us next Saturday when we are joined with Sister Warrior, Comrade, and Our Common Ground Voice, Barbara Arnwine. For more than 20 years, she's led the work of legal challenges against oppression in America. She is now leaving her post at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. We'll be talking with her about her future and the future of the Lawyers Committee. I'm Janice Graham. Next Saturday, 10 p.m., live, I'll be listening for you.